listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, we're continuing with our sermon series on the book of 1 John this morning, and we will be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's Word. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here today be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. One of the weirdest sayings of the English language, and there's an awful lot of them, is this one, the proof is in the pudding. You ever heard this? The proof is in the pudding. What in the world does that even mean? I mean, I've been eating pudding for 36 years, and no matter what flavor I try, no matter how deep I dig, when I get to the the bottom of that container, I have yet to find any proof or evidence of a crime there. Uh, Once I did find an almond in in the rice pudding. That was like a Christmas kind of thing, but that's as close as I've gotten. So I did a little research, come to discover that this is actually a shortened phrase of a much longer, not much longer, a longer original, uh, which is this, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Clear as crystal, right? Uh, Apparently there was a time in England when pudding was all the rage. I can't wrap my mind around that, but that was the case. Uh, Basically the idea here is you can't prove how good the pudding is just by looking at it. You have to actually eat it. You have to actually take a bite. And the evidence for that being good pudding is in the eating. That's the proof that determines whether it's genuine or not. So we might say the proof of a band's musical skills is in the pudding of their album. The proof of a good doctor is in the pudding of their diagnoses. The proof of a good student is in the pudding of their test results, right? The proof is in the pudding. And this, in a sense, gets pretty close to what John is telling us this morning. The proof of a Christian's relationship with God is in the pudding of their obedience. Anyone hungry for pudding yet? Listen to the first two verses of our passage again. He starts out, my little children, and when John says this, 
he doesn't mean it in any sort of belittling or demeaning way. It's more of a, a loving kind of thing. John wrote this letter later on in life, so he's talking gently to his beloved spiritual grandchildren. So, my little children, he starts out, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Right, so there are two truths we need to affirm here. Number one, you should strive to fight sin. Number two, you'll never be sinless. He says both of these, kind of in the same breath. Now, because of our spiritual tunnel vision, what we tend to do is fixate on one of these to the exclusion of the other. We either fixate on overcoming sin and we'll like expend all of our spiritual blood, sweat, and tears trying to attain sinlessness by perfect obedience, which if we were really listening to John earlier in his letter, says is basically an impossibility, right? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. So we either fixate on, on that side, the, the fight, the overcoming of sin, or we fixate on the fact that we'll never be sinless, so therefore, like, what's the point in even trying to fight against sin? And we become complacent. God's going to forgive me anyway, so is it really that big of a deal? The fancy theological term for these two ditches are legalism and antinomianism. Don't worry, there won't be a quiz later, I promise. But the point is that they're both wrong. And what John does is he steers us clear of, of both of these extremes, and he charts out a middle way, and it involves holding both of these truths in tension simultaneously. You should strive to fight sin and you'll never be sinless. And he takes it for granted that we will sin, but that in no way should diminish our zeal to fight against sin. Now, for many people, though, there's a bigger hurdle than this in our passage this morning. And it goes beyond our passage this morning. It goes to the heart of, of Christianity, and it's this one little three-letter word, sin. Sin, right? Super unpopular word in today's day and age. It's a massive roadblock for people, especially in our modern world, sometimes for legitimate reasons, other times not so much. But I, I believe, I, I truly believe that because of this, we as Christians, whenever we use the word sin, particularly in conversation with a non-believer, it's, it's worth it for us to take the time to properly define it. Define our terms. What are we talking about when we use the word sin? I mean, we're God's missionaries after all, right? We, we just spent an entire series kind of walking through these truths and learning that I am God's missionary. And what is one of the first things that a missionary does when they go to their training before heading into a foreign country? Well, they learn the language of, of the people group that they are going to minister within. They learn, to, they learn their vocabulary, they learn their culture, they learn to speak their language. And when people in our day and age in America, when they hear us use the word sin, they, they hear it with a different inflection than we think, which tells us that we need to do some translation work. 
One definition from Merriam-Webster says that sin is an action that is felt to be highly reprehensible. Uh, Dictionary.com says it means to offend against a principle or standard. Uh, And UrbanDictionary.com, my personal favorite, defines sin as making eye contact before marriage. Generally speaking, when people in our secular age hear the word sin, they understand it along these lines, this kind of puritanical idea of not having any fun or arbitrarily obeying a set of outdated standards. So to them, committing a sin means mowing your lawn on Sunday, uh, reading Harry Potter, or voting for any candidate other than a Republican. That last one sounds a bit like a joke. It's not. A church planter friend of mine once spoke with someone who wanted to join his church but said he couldn't because of his political leanings. See what happened is the church's political identity trumped their identity in Christ, and this is not an uncommon thing. But none of this is the Bible's definition of sin, or at, at best, it's a truncated and flawed version of it. Sin, according to Scripture, is a whole lot bigger. New Testament scholar Richard Yarborough in his commentary on 1 John, he says there are three dimensions of sin in John's letter. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but it is very true, and it's helpful. Sin has to do with, with three things, your beliefs, your conduct, and your love. Your beliefs, your conduct, and your love. First off, sin has to do with your beliefs. What do you believe? What you believe as a Christian, even as a human being, matters a lot. It matters very deeply. Most other world religions emphasize right living, and they'll teach you, well, in this situation you do this, and this is how you you live right, and these are the moral standards that, that you follow. Well, Christianity kind of has a different starting point. And Christianity says, no, like, what you believe, your doctrine, first and foremost, what you believe about God and human beings matters. And that's where we start, is is with faith, is with belief. Unbelief, in other words, not trusting in Jesus Christ, is a sin. It's really the ultimate sin, the taproot from which every other sin springs. 1 John 5.10 says it like this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So faith, or lack thereof, then, is the ultimate transgression. When we reject the gospel, which is to say when we reject the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you and for me, what we're doing is turning our back on the gift giver. It's kind of like this. Imagine that you're a prisoner in a a cell, and and imagine it's it's a really bad crime. You're serving a lifelong sentence, and actually you're, you're awaiting death. You're on death row. But unexpectedly, the warden shows up, takes out his key, unlocks your cell, and tells you you're free to go. All charges dropped. But instead of jumping for joy, you tell him, nah, I'm good. And you shut the door again and keep pacing around your prison cell. What's happening here is that you prefer the dark, dank confines of your prison cell to the warm breeze and the light of day because you sincerely believe you're better off where you are. 
right? So, so this is where we start. Sin has to do with, with what we believe, both about ourselves and about God. But sin also has to do with our conduct. It has to do with the way that we live. So first off, beliefs. Secondly, conduct. And this dimension of sin is the most obvious. This is what everyone thinks of when they hear the word sin. And John addresses this today. He says, keep God's commandments. Keep His word. Walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Sin has to do not just with what we believe, but with what we do, right? Another way to to say this is that orthodoxy does not automatically mean orthopraxy, which is a fancy way of saying right belief does not automatically translate to right practice. But if we claim and, and, and say that we know God and that we trust Him, it follows that the way we live our lives will show proof of this, right? The proof of our faith, this is the fruit. This is how we know we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Obedience to God is evidence that you are part of His family, His people. It's a little bit like this. Let's say you play tennis for Osakis. So you pay the fee, you sign the form, and you show up to practice, right? But when the coach tells you to bring your racket, you show up with a pool noodle. When she tells you to hit the ball, you kick it. When she tells you to act respectfully, you do a touchdown dance every time you score a point. When she tells you to keep score honestly, you give yourself extra points and call all of your opponent's shots out even when they're in. When she tells you to wear your uniform to the game, you show up in your prom dress. You get what I'm saying, right? You're not following the rules. You're not behaving like a member of the team. You're claiming to be an Osegas tennis player, but everything that you're doing is indicating that you're not actually a member of that team. That right there is the second dimension of sin, your conduct. So sin has to do with, with what we believe, it has to do with our conduct, and thirdly, sin has to do with what we love. Listen to 1 John 4.10, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Did you notice the verbs here? Loving, hating. These are emotionally laden terms. Sometimes, and I don't know if this is our Scandinavian heritage or our Lutheran tradition or what, but we're scared of bringing the emotions into discussions of faith. Have you, have you ever seen this? You resonate with that at all? We always have to start with like a huge disclaimer and we'll say something like, now, of course, our feelings are fickle and can't be trusted, which is true, but I find it interesting that we always have to start there. We always feel the need to give this caveat because when you read the biblical authors and interestingly enough, even when you get more into to Martin Luther, for example, uh, they didn't really feel the need to do that. They're not shy about their emotions and desires at all. I mean, have you read the Psalms? Frankly, it's a little bit embarrassing. If anyone other than David were to, to write a poem that expresses his emotions and affections in that way, he would be kicked out of the, the next men's retreat. 
You'd have his man card rejected. These guys wear their hearts on their sleeves. So for the biblical authors, the life of faith always involves the emotions and the affections as well as the intellect, which is really just another way of saying it's not just about the head, but it's a heart thing too. It's about what we love, what we long for, our innermost desires. Yarborough puts it like this. It's not about merely believing or knowing certain things though this is imperative, and not merely obeying certain commands, though this is requisite, but also having a heart characterized by certain affections, both toward God and toward others. Another way to say this might be that we sin when we don't love the right things. The inner attitude of our hearts matters to God more than anything You can assent to the right doctrines, you can treat others well, but that does not mean you have kept God's law. To do so, you also need love in your heart. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2, Paul says, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love... I am nothing. Let's break this down. Here's what this means practically speaking. For you and I to love as Jesus loved with the right motives and the right affections, we can't just begrudgingly pay our taxes. We have to want to do so. We can't just forgive the toxic person in our lives. We have to actively desire what's best for them. You can't just congratulate your friend on their success. You have to do so without a trace of sarcasm or malice or jealousy. You can't just put up with your needy coworker. You have to actively prioritize their good above your own, even when it costs you personally. Sound like a tall order? It is. Taller than the space needle. In fact, it's so tall that none of us can reach it. As the Apostle Paul concludes in Romans 3, all are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. Sin is a reality that none of us can escape on our own. It infects everything. And takes into account our beliefs, our conduct, and our love. But there is another reality besides sin. An even greater, truer reality that actually has the power to cancel sin and overcome all of its effects. Remember, John takes it for granted that we will sin. Human perfection is a myth, he says. And anyone who says that they've got it all together is either ignorant or lying. And yet, when we fail, there is this promise. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a what? An advocate with the Father. 
In the context here, this word advocate, it's used in a legal sense, like a lawyer defending his client. Imagine your situation before God like this, because this is the picture the Bible paints. You sit at the defense table accused of crimes you know you committed. At some point and in some way in your life, you have done wrong. You're guilty, guilty as sin. And the sentence you justly deserve is death, right? The wages of sin is, is death. So when that gavel pounds down, the judge renders the verdict without hesitation, right? Guilty. Guilty. It's loud, it's clear, and the truth of it breaks your heart. But then something amazing happens. The judge takes off his robe, marches over to the bailiff, and he speaks these words. I will serve in the prisoner's place. Your handcuffs are unlocked and placed on him instead. Jesus is clothed in the prison uniform meant for you. He has marched off to serve the sentence that you deserved, suffering and dying in your place. You see, that right there is the picture that, that we have of our advocate in Jesus Christ. As Karl Barth puts it, and I love this image, he says, he is the judge judged in our place. And for those who believe, we receive the full benefits of His love and forgiveness and righteousness. So, you see, friends, our confidence as believers is not in our lack of sin, but in God's abundant mercy. As St. Ambrose, the famous 4th century bishop of Milan put it, he says, I will not glory because I am free of sins, but because sins have been forgiven me. So as we labor and fight against sin in all of its forms, may we too learn to glory in this wonderful truth. Our sins have been forgiven us, which means that our identity is not riding on our performance, but on the perfect performance of God's only beloved Son on our behalf. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are free. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are being fashioned and molded into His image more and more each and every day. So may we live every day as if this were actually true. May we believe, may we obey, and may we learn to love others in the same way that He first loved us. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. <laughs>